Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm guest host Ted Michaels. Heading into the third week of the election campaign, new polls find Justin Trudeau is losing some support. Of course, Trudeau's pain is O'Toole's gain. How much pressure is being put on the Liberals, and how does he get out of this situation? The Canadian Taxpayers Federation is calling on the Liberal Party to include a plan to balance the budget in its upcoming platform announcement. Franco Terrazano, federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, joins us to discuss. And what is the new C1.2 COVID-19 variant, and should we be worried? All that and more next on the Bill Kelly Podcast, which starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Ted is in. Good morning uh, to our listeners, to the Bill Kelly Show on 980 CFPL in London and 900 CHML in Hamilton. While there's a lot of election things we're going to be talking about today, we're going to be talking about um, some of the upcoming uh, variants that could cause a lot more angst for people when it comes to uh, COVID-19. And that's a little bit later on in the hour. But uh, right off the top, there is a little bit of concern about the latest election poll, and that is if you are um, a person who is in the Liberal Party or one specifically, uh, Mr. Justin Trudeau. Let's have that report. According to the poll from Leger, Aaron O'Toole's Conservatives are running ahead of the Liberals, with the support of 34% of decided voters who took part in the survey. Support for Trudeau's Liberals, meanwhile, was down 5 points to 30%. But asked what they'd do if the election comes down to a tight race between Liberals and Conservatives, 24% of decided voters of other parties said they'd be more likely to vote Liberal. And that is a report by Emily Javesky. So let's talk about the because there's an interesting twist to the latest poll. Doran joining us from the uh, School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. She is a director of that school. And uh, Dr. Lori Turnbull joins us uh, on the Bill Kelly Show. Lori, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, first things right off the top, you know, we, we hear about the poll. There is apparently uh, one of the things, and of course we can e- extrapolate a whole bunch of things from uh, polls and surveys and what have you, but apparently there is a loss of traditional support among women uh, f- going away from Justin Trudeau and kind of crossing over, if you will, to Aaron O'Toole. Does that surprise you? Um. Like, not necessarily, right? Like, I think um, O'Toole decided to come out with his full platform right away. And so that gives people an opportunity to really look at what he, like, have a full picture of what he wants to do. And although he's he's proposing something different, definitely, from what Justin Trudeau is proposing, I mean, he's he's talking about childcare, he's talking about climate change, he's talking about social programs and the things that people... Are really you know thinking about at this point and so it doesn't surprise me a whole lot that some votes would shift his way and he's also taking a different kind of approach in terms of his tone this is not stephen harper's uh conservative party he's talking about compassion you know so yeah i mean i'm, I'm and he's doing better than we thought he would so i'm not super surprised you know one of the things that uh, jumps out at me laurie is uh, the old expression and it comes into play is be careful what you wish for justin trudeau wanted this election most people didn't and it appears to me the way the polls are going right now i'm getting the sense that mr trudeau may have a rude awakening come election night yeah i mean like to me national polls are national polls Right. Like they're not a vote. Right. And they're sort of a a pulse check at a certain period of time. And we've got three weeks left of this 
madness. So anything could happen between now and then. But at the same time, like, you know, the party wants to see the polls go in the right direction. The, poll, the, the polls can give you momentum if it looks like they're going the right way. What's really going to matter is what happens in terms of the seat count, what happens in terms of, you know, who votes for who and what riding and whether or not he can get to that majority. But if he doesn't, what does success look like for Justin Trudeau if he doesn't get a majority? Is that the threshold? Is anything less than that going to make him look like, oh, wow, you called this election and dragged us all out here for nothing because now we're back to where we were? You know, it's interesting, too, because uh, if things don't go the way that uh, Justin Trudeau wants them to go, and, of course, a Liberal Party, if they get a uh, not a very... Uh, uh, energetic response and they get a low minority uh would in your opinion would a leadership review and maybe it's still early but this is something that i've heard through the grapevine that you know things don't go well we may have to look at the leader yeah i mean again i i would say like he called this election because he thought that a majority was possible and he would think that because looking at certain swing ridings um you know ridings that he figured he'd be able to flip and so regardless of what the national polls say, we know that the conservative vote is not as efficient. We know that the electoral system is no friend to the NDP. And so this is, as much as it's a national campaign, it's also a very specific calculation by the Liberals about which ridings they think they can flip. If it doesn't go his way, of course there'll be conversations about the leadership, because whether he comes back in it as a minority prime minister or you know, if, if there was some scenario where he's defeated and Arrow O'Toole forms a government, this is still his third go. And so I think, um, you know, he called the election hoping that he'd get that majority, that give him four years, he'd be prime minister for 10 years, and there you go. If that doesn't come through, of course there'll be conversations. We're not great at leadership transition in Canada. Like, we, we have a hard time with it when there's a leader that's kind of holding on, and there's no natural transition point like there is in the U.S. where you can only be president for two terms. Right. Like, we, we have to kind of negotiate it. And the Trudeau um, imprint on the Liberal Party is so significant. Like, loyalty to Trudeau is what counts as opposed to loyalty to the party for the most part. It's really transformed over the years. You can say that about other parties, too. Well, you know, it's it's interesting, too, Laurie, because uh, I'm of a certain vintage that I remember that for years and years and years, it seemed that the progressive conservative party would be the ones that would always have the leadership review, and they would, you know, uh, as the expression goes, disembowel themselves on national television, and they would have the knives coming out for the leaders, and, and everybody would kind of sit back and laugh, oh, look at those poor little progressive conservatives. It appears now, we're not saying that this is the case, but it could be the case. Isn't it interesting now that the liberals could be the ones that find themselves under the spotlight? Well, that's it. And I mean, certainly not what they planned at all, right? But I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how all the leaders play this, I think, you know, depending on how it goes. Like, we could get a surprise. Right now, it looks like the conservatives and the NDP have the momentum. There's still three weeks left. There's still the leaders' debates. Like, it's, you know, anything could happen here. But it's possible that if we get in, into a situation where, like, there's a real kind of surprise, or even if there's not, there could be more than one leader who is facing um, some questions from the party, right? Like, what happens if, if O'Toole is really riding high right now and this doesn't pan out for him? What happens there, right? Like, if this is Jagmeet Singh's second election, 
and he's not able to turn this into more seats, he's going to be facing a serious challenge, too. Uh, our guest on uh, the Bill Kelly Show is Dr. Laurie Turnbull, Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. And you mentioned, and this is a very important part, Laurie, is the debates are coming up uh, the early part of next month. Right now, when it comes to pressure, and of course everybody has to perform when it comes to when those lights go on, but right now, of the three leaders, is it fair to say that Trudeau is the one that is under and facing the most pressure going into these debates? I really think that that's true. I mean, you could make the argument that O'Toole's got the one with something to prove. He's the new leader. But Trudeau, I think, is on the defensive because of the election call, because of the fact that, um, you know, because of the timing of the call, because of a lack of a ballot question from him, because he's now down in the polls from where he was. And, you know, you could read into that what you want. But essentially, like, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on him to define, you know, what is it? That, why are we out here? Like, what is it that you want to accomplish? And for him, I mean, he's he's very good. Like, he's a, a good debater. Like, I don't anticipate that Trudeau is going to have a terrible night at the debates or anything. But yes, I to- totally agree with you. I think the pressure's on him. Now, uh, you mentioned uh, a little while ago about uh, the NDP and... Uh, it- things not being quite favorable toward the NDP. I'm, I'm curious about that statement, what you uh, talked about uh, when it comes to, to the NDP and, and having problems. I mean, I, it seems to me like Jagmeet Singh is having a much better campaign this time than he did the last time. I think that um, he's found some a kind of energy and a confidence. He's resonating well with people when he does his, his leaders' rounds. Um, I think there's a number of writings that you could point to that he's, you know, the, the NDP are competitive and they're taking a very focused approach in terms of what writings they think they can flip in a 36-day campaign and how they can pitch their message to appeal more broadly. I think that it's possible that um, you're kind of seeing, even though as Jagmeet Singh gets more popular, there's a kind of ceiling to that where they don't, like, I don't think that people think about the NDP as an alternative to government in the same way as they think about the Liberals and the Conservatives. So at some point, it's like, even if Jagmeet Singh is popular, it, it hits a ceiling where it doesn't go any further than, say, you know, 22% kind of thing. And again, if, he's, if he is trying to maximize the NDP seat count, he has to appeal on that basis. He has to be like, look, you know, keep us in the House, give us more seats. We are great at holding the government to account. He's indicated that he's willing to work with um, Aaron O'Toole if the time comes. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how he plays that space, too. I'm wondering, um, and heading in, of course, to, to the election, uh, the Afghanistan situation really wasn't front and center. Clearly now it is heading into the debates. Could that be the one big issue that maybe uh, uh, defines or uh, defines the success of Justin Trudeau or maybe leads to his uh, failure? I mean, it's something, it's, it's such a, like, I think it brings a whole bunch of things into account. He is the prime minister. So he is under pressure to respond to this issue in ways that the other opposition leaders, like the other leaders, are not. He's the only person who, like, he's the head of government, right? So, like, any other issue that comes up, whether it's health care or long-term care or whatever the case may be, all the leaders are sort of accountable for their position on it. But he is the prime minister. So he's the one who's really got to answer for, for the Afghanistan situation and what Canada's role, like, what role we're playing in helping. I think the timing of the election was always problematic. Now, because of the Afghanistan situation, it looks inappropriate. It's even worse, right? And the prime minister has to explain why, instead of really being at the table fully with other G7 leaders, you know, he's on the campaign trail. 
and people are going to, you know, people will, will think about that. And we can see, you know, as a lot of international coverage and media attention is focused on that, it makes the election seem like, oh, God, you know, why are we doing this when there's more important things to do? You know, I just had a thought, and that is, uh, if we are going, and all indications, no matter who wins, seems to be leading toward a minority government, could we be doing this again maybe next this time next year, Laurie? Because nobody wants another election. Nobody wants one now. No, they don't. And I think that's probably some, like, that's the reality, right? Like, if we end up in a situation where Trudeau comes back, he's got a minority, Singh's not too excited about supporting him, he goes, whether he goes to O'Toole or not. Nobody wants to do this again next year. There's already voter fatigue with the election. And so I think, you know, they're going to have to make it work. Whatever, whatever gets spit out at the end of this, the parties are going to have to sort it. And it's an issue that we think of, of minority governments as this sort of temporary period that as soon as the government hits the sweet spot with a majority possibility in the polls, everybody goes running. Like, well, no. You know, maybe we have a multi-party system. Maybe Canadians, you know, want it this way. And if that's what, what comes back, I think that there's going to be a lot of pressure on the parties to accept that. One of the things we're watching, Laurie, of course, is uh, the the mail-in votes, what's going to happen as far as the election. And we've already been warned that what you see on election night when the results come in here uh, on Global News Radio 900 CHML, it may not be a confirmed winner that night. Interesting twist to this election with something that we haven't dealt with in the past. Yeah, I mean, I don't know necessarily that mail-in ballots will go a totally different direction. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if there's, there's going to be an advantage to one party over another with respect to the mail-in ballot as opposed to the in-person as opposed to the advance. Some, in some jurisdictions, you see that. I'm not sure that we have the evidence of that in Canada at this point. But yeah, it does make a bit for potentially a long night if there are really close ridings. And I think that's what the parties are counting on, right? That there, there are enough ridings that are really in play that the election could produce some, some difference, right? And so if we're looking at some of those tight writings that end up going overnight into the, you know, next day as we count the ballots. It'll be, I mean, it's, it'll be an interesting twist. But the other thing too is we might see this in subsequent elections. It, we might develop a kind of normalization of mail-in ballots, maybe even someday voting online. And that'll change the nature of election night in the sense that the vote count will take longer. You know, I um, our by the way, as again our guest on uh, the Bill Kelly Show, uh, as we wrap up, Dr. Laurie Turnbull from the director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. Uh, if I'm a public relations person for any one of the major uh, leaders o- over the next, and we're coming into you know the, the election September 20th, so we're 20, 21, 22 days away. I I wonder how they're all sitting, holding their breath, thinking, okay, no major gaffes. We, you know, things are going our way. We're going down the road. Uh, this this is a very nerve-wracking time for everybody just to make sure that, the, as I say, there's no major gaffes that could kind of upset the apple cart. Yeah, and I think when we know that voters are, like, it seems like with this election, voters are willing to move. Like, you don't see this sort of, like, totally determined party loyalty, like voters are willing to have a look at what people are offering and move their vote around. And so that means they're all vulnerable. It means that, you know, a little thing that happens on the campaign trail, if it starts to pick up some speed, like that could really change things. And so, yes, I think you're right. It's a kind of a risk-averse approach. But at the same time, people are looking for, you know, authenticity and real offerings from the party. So playing it safe has some risks. 
to it too, if that makes sense. And hopefully, uh, no matter who's out, and I know that we've had a lot of uh, stories here on CHML the last few days about uh, what's been happening to uh, Justin Trudeau and Bolton, what have you. Hopefully the vitriolic and acerbic and all the bad things that have been yelled at him uh, will stay away because that's, you know, we're all cringing when we watch that, Lori, because the first thing we think of is this looks like Donald Trump last year, and we certainly don't want that. We don't. No, nobody wants that. That nobody benefits from that. We shouldn't have to. Like an election is a time to exchange ideas. We're allowed to to you know press each other. We're allowed to challenge each other. But anything below that threshold of civility is not acceptable. Well, we'll see what happens as the election, as we say, you go to the polls on September 20th. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from uh, the director of School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, thanks for the update. We will keep uh, an eye on uh, what happens over the hustings in the last uh, three or four weeks of the campaign and, uh, and see what happens, uh, who gets rewarded and who gets scolded on election night. Thanks very much for the time. Thank you. Take care. And uh, interesting on the polls, as we say, uh, Justin Trudeau losing traditional support among women. Remember when he won the election and there were a lot of people saying that it was the quote-unquote younger vote and they all liked the Justin Trudeau when he came up that night and uh, maybe not so much the case anymore. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Liberals have to have a plan to balance the budget. This is according to uh, uh, the latest uh, results and a survey and information from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. And joining us uh, to talk about that is a federal director of the aforementioned Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Franco Terrazano. Franco, good morning. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me on today. So, first things first. From what I understand, um, <laughs> and of course, I, I've been told, ah, it's the government, it's only money. From what I understand, Trudeau, Mr. Trudeau, back in 2015 when he ran for prime minister, he promised, underlying, Franco, promised that he would balance the budget in 2019. Now, according to data from that has come out, he may not balance the budget. The feds won't balance the budget until 2070. How is this possible, Franco? Yeah, it's absolutely mind-boggling, isn't it? And, and that data comes from the Parliamentary Budget Officer, which is the government's own independent budget watchdog. And it essentially says that under the status quo from the Trudeau government, we wouldn't see a balanced budget until 2070. And, you know, if that were to happen us Canadians would lose out on about $3.8 trillion just in interest charges, right? So that would be trillions of dollars that couldn't go to health care, can't go to improving roads, it can't stay in our pockets through lower taxes, because all that money would be going to the bond, fan, uh, bond fund managers just to service the government's debt. So it's absolutely mind-boggling, and I think it really stems from just an overspending problem from Ottawa that occurred even before the pandemic. Where are the checks and balances in this? Uh, I understand it's a government and they can do with, with that what they want, but is, is there any recourse, anybody aside from you talk about the parliamentary budget officer kind of waving their hands and, you know, checks and balances and red flags and said, hang on here, do you realize what you're doing? Well, the biggest checks and balance, especially right now, is the election. Right. And we, we all know that politicians like like to politic right during press releases or press or news conferences. They like to stick to their talking points. But now they actually have to come knocking on our doors uh, to ask us for our vote. So the, it's now the perfect opportunity for us Canadians 
to ask our politicians, you know, I would say three simple questions. The first question at the door that we should be asking is, well, how are you going to pay down this $1 trillion federal debt? Because right now the federal government's debt is over a trillion dollars, which means that each Canadian owes about $29,000 in government debt <laughs> if the deficit spending isn't reined in. Isn't that just mind-boggling? Yep. And there's two other important questions. The second question is, well, where are you going to save money? Because we've got a $500 billion budget. In 2018, the federal government was spending all-time highs. And the third question is, you know, after all of this unprecedented spending, are you going to raise my taxes to pay for all of this? You know, it's interesting. I'm sitting here doing the math, and and I got to tell you, Franco, I was really proud of myself that I paid off my visa bill. I had no balance. Matter of fact, I was so proud I printed it off and put it on my fridge. Zero balance. Now you're telling me, Franco, I'm $29,000 in the hole again? Yeah, it's, it's so unfortunate, but you're actually more than that, right? So federal government debt is $29,000 per person. And I think it's important to remember that the government doesn't have any money of its own. All of the money that politicians spend has to come from taxpayers one way or another, whether that's through higher taxes today, higher taxes plus interest tomorrow, or through the inflation tax, right, through the printing press, um, which just means that all of the money that we have goes less and less far. But I think it's important to remember, not only are we $29,000 in federal government debt, we also have to pay provincial government debt as well. And if you include provincial governments, the average Canadian already owes about $57,000 in government debt. I'm sitting here thinking, you know, uh, again, doing the math, just to take this point one step further, uh, Franco, if it is 2070, that's 49 years from now. I can assure you I am not going to be here in 49 years. Heaven forbid, I wish you all the best. Perhaps you will be, but our kids, and again, we've heard this, our kids and our grandchildren, uh, you know, the year 2070 seems like such a long way away, but that debt just seems to, you know, it just keeps on ticking and ticking and ticking. That Again, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around the fact that we're that much in debt and it's going to take that long to pay. Yeah, we are that much in debt. Um, and this is really why we're kind of sounding the alarm here with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Because this is the elephant in the room, the $1 trillion federal government debt, and it's something that most politicians don't want to talk about. So we need to make sure that we're forcing them to talk about this issue when they come knocking at our door. And, you know, under that status quo, where we won't see a balanced budget until 2070, the, the debt per person would skyrocket to $67,000 per person. And that's just federal government debt. So I think all of this really raises a very important question, and that's what type of nation, what type of finances, what type of burden do we want to leave on the next generation? Because remember, under the status quo, we wouldn't balance the budget until 2070, but we would still have a bunch of debt to pay back, right? Balancing the budget isn't paying down the debt. Our guest on the uh, Bill Kelly Show is uh, Franco Terrazano, the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. You know, I'm sitting here and and I'm almost playing politician thinking if I was uh, Justin Trudeau and I was uh, facing uh, in a debate or what have you, I wonder 
and we're not being flippant here or trying to be, you know, lighthearted, but how much of the blame is he going to put on the pandemic and getting all these special accounts and helping Canadians out with CERB and all that other stuff, money that they obviously didn't budget for? I'm wondering if that is going to be one of the things that he talks about as to why we're in this problem. He might. He might try to spin it that way. But the, the truth of the matter is, is that the spending problem, the debt, happened before COVID-19. Um, now, here's another mind-boggling stat. In 2018, the federal government uh, brought its spending to all-time highs. And that's after accounting for population and inflation. So what that means is that in 2018, the federal government spent more than it ever did during any single year during World War II. And that was before the pandemic. So certainly there should be areas within that bloated budget where they can find savings. Now, I'm wondering, uh, from a, a taxpayer standpoint, you talk about, you know, the um, are they going to raise taxes? And, of course, they all claim that they're not going to. That creates a whole lot of other problems for people as well who are finding it hard enough now to, to pay the bills. Now they're putting the debt, um, I sound like a politician, here on the backs of Canadians. Uh, how much more can we as taxpayers take? Because I'll tell you, a lot of people, uh, you know, are really, really financially squeezed, and it's not going to get any better for them next in a while. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think a huge issue in this election is affordability, and rightfully so, because a lot of people that I talk to, my friends, my family, they're having a very difficult time, right, making ends meet, uh, stretching out their paycheck. But here's the thing. A politician shouldn't talk about the cost of living without talking about how governments are driving up the cost of living. We just saw a report from the Fraser Institute that said even during the pandemic, um, the average Canadian family paid 36% of its budget to taxes, which is more than what the average family is paying for housing, clothing, and food combined. So if these politicians really want to talk about the cost of living, they should be talking about tax relief. Now, one of the things that uh, that brings up is, um, are they living in their own little world that they have no concept. They're up, uh, you know, they're representing their constituents. They could be obviously from any part of the country and they're living there. Um, do I, and I don't know if you ever get the sense when you're talking to, to people, but do they have any sense of what the real people are going through? Like, are they all off in la-la land and they have basically, they don't care what's going on with uh, their constituents until it comes time to uh, get reelected? I think you just hit the nail on the head. That is the issue right there. And especially through the pandemic, I'm very worried that these politicians in Ottawa really don't understand the true struggles that millions of Canadians, so many workers, so many small businesses have gone through. And one of the reasons that is, is because, well, they're financially divorced from the reality facing Canadians, right? So many Canadians took pay cuts, lost their jobs, small business owners seeing their revenue evaporate before their very eyes. Well, our politicians, our members of Parliament pocketed not one, but two pay raises during the pandemic, ranging from more than 6000 for a backbench MP to more than 13000 for the Prime Minister. So our members of Parliament who are supposed to be representing us got two pay raises during COVID-19. Mind-boggling. 
And then um, now we don't want to, um, of course, uh, this whole survey released by the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is uh, talking about uh, the Liberal Party. But when it comes to the NDP, um, they're still preaching the same song from the choir book, so to speak. Uh, They're talking about uh, hiking uh, business taxes and opposing a wealth tax and a luxury tax and basically taxing the rich. Uh, Mr. Trudeau is now leaning a little bit uh, toward that. But uh, from your standpoint, does the NDP kind of have to rethink what they're doing financially? Because sometimes that message can, uh, after a while, be like it's, it's almost the same thing over and over again. Well, you know what? The NDP plan is also just not credible. If they want to govern, they have to come back with a credible plan to balance the budget. Um, The NDP released its platform commitments, and as you said, I mean, it's essentially taxes here, taxes there, taxes everywhere, raising the top income tax rate, raising business taxes, putting in a wealth tax, taxing so-called excess profits. But even with all of these tax hikes, they still have no clue how they would balance the budget. No clue whatsoever. And here's what the NDP politicians are trying to sell Canadians. They're trying to sell us that these taxes would only be paid by big businesses or the wealthy. But the truth of the matter is is that all Canadians would end up paying these taxes every time we go to the till and the price of whatever has gone up. But we're also going to pay for these taxes through less job opportunities, right? So, That's what we have to understand about all these proposed tax hikes in the NDP platform. One, they want to raise taxes, but they still have no idea how to balance the budget. And two, it's really going to be everyday Canadians paying for these taxes through higher prices and less job opportunities. Okay, so we've talked about the Liberals. We've talked about the NDP. Um, Talk about the Conservative platform. Or is there one when it comes to balancing the the budget? What jumps out at you uh, as the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation? Well, you know, I guess we have to give the Conservatives a little bit of credit because they are the only party that's specifically talking about balancing the budget. Um, Aaron O'Toole's Conservative platform says that they would balance the budget within a decade. But here's the problem. I mean, they're really just paying lip service to balancing the budget because their platform, uh, their 10-year balanced budget plan, really is incredible. It has no targets in terms of how they're going to meet Uh, the balanced budget. It has very few ways to find saving, and their platform isn't even costed. So essentially what we're hearing from O'Toole is, hey, trust us, and in a decade, we'll have done something good. And when people... (laughs) I'm laughing, Franco, because when people hear the term from a politician trust us, generally (laughs) they turn and they run the other direction because we all know that those words don't go over too well, do they? Well, and here's the thing... uh, the Conservative members of Parliament have rightly held the Trudeau government accountable for its overspending, or, or, or just the massive amount of spending that we've seen from the Trudeau government, right? We've, we've seen comments from O'Toole and other Conservative members of Parliament about the spending. So if they make these comments about the spending, about the, the big budget, well, why can't they find many different ways? To actually save some money. But really, all we're hearing from the Conservatives in terms of finding savings is ending the subsidies to media, doing remote, more remote working for bureaucrats. But really, that's it. Um, and you know, another frustrating thing is that we've heard the Conservative MPs um, rightly say that members of Parliament should not have received pay raises during COVID-19. Well, wh- then why wasn't that included within their platform, right? Why wouldn't they say we're going to reverse the COVID-19 politician pay hikes. 
We have the debates coming up in the early part of September, um, and I'm really hoping that the financial situation, and we would presume that at some point it would, but it'll be really interesting, Franco, to see uh, what the uh, major party leaders uh, have to say about finances, and and hopefully the people on the panel, I'm not sure who it is, uh, will grill them about uh, what they want to do as far as paying down the debt, because when you break down the numbers the way you have been, I think a lot of people maybe weren't aware just how dire this situation is. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons most people aren't aware of it is because politicians don't want to talk about it. Mm. So I think a lot of the blame is on politicians. Remember, politicians get cameras um, quite easily. They get a lot of coverage. So they could be spreading this information, right? The fact that Canada is more than a trillion dollars in debt federally. So why aren't they talking about this? This is a very important issue. I know there's always many different issues when an election comes out, but I I think this really is the elephant in the room. I mean, how are these politicians going to pay down the $1 trillion debt? Are they going to raise taxes to pay for their overspending? Are they going to find savings in this bloated budget? What are they going to do about it? I think that's the elephant in the room. Interesting uh, that I know, uh, Franco, that we've talked about this, and Mr. Trudeau um, called the election, and, you know, the expression that we're using is, be careful what you wish for, because he thought that he would obviously come through this election uh, really well, maybe a majority. Clearly, uh, judging from the polls, that's not going to happen. We're going to go probably have a minority government, and probably too close to call. And I'm sitting here wondering, and we talked about this uh, last half hour, are we going to go through this in another year to talk again? about finances with another minority government that's called an election? Oh, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, you know, I just hope that we actually start talking about the finances right now. You know, we've heard a little bit from the Conservatives. The NDP essentially just wants to tax everything, but haven't heard a plan from them to balance the budget. And I think with the Liberals, I mean, they're the party that called this election, right? So they should have a plan to balance the budget. So I think the onus is even more so on them to, pre- to present their plan to balance the budget to taxpayers. I mean, after all, they're the ones who knew the election was coming because they called the election. Interesting times. September 20th, we go to the polls. Franco Terrazano, the federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, you really open up our eyes to some of the uh, the numbers uh, as they are right now when it comes to paying down the uh, the federal debt. Uh, certainly something that is like an albatross, as you say, the elephant in the room, and uh, I'll have to keep an eye on that one. Thank you very much for the time. Much appreciated. Stay safe, stay well. Hey, my pleasure, and thanks so much for having me on. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As they told us it would be, there's all these, if you will, variants and things that have changed as far as COVID and what to look forward to and what to prepare for, including uh, this report that has a little bit of good news when it comes to parents with kids in school. Runny noses, sore throats, and headaches are no longer among the list of symptoms associated with COVID-19. In fact, you'll only have to consider five symptoms associated with the virus. Fevers, cough, shortness of breath, a decrease or loss of taste or smell, and nausea. The province has also updated its guidance on siblings of those with COVID-19 symptoms. If the sibling is fully vaccinated, they'll be able to go to school regardless. The guidance does say that parents will be expected to keep their child home if they exhibit any symptoms, not just those on the list. The guidance is only meant to apply for when a child can return to class. 
Dave Woodard at Global News. And joining us to talk about that and uh, another variant uh, when it comes to COVID is uh, Dr. Brian Lichty from the McMaster Immunology Research Center. And he joins us here on uh, CHML and CFPL in London. Brian, good morning. Welcome to uh, the end of August. Yeah, good morning. It's, it's um, uh, The summer's flown by, isn't it? Yeah, you know what? Uh, in many ways, of course, the pandemic has just dragged by, and it's been a lot of, uh, you know, obviously anxiety and nerves are shattered. But on the other hand, too, it's it just flown by. So now as we get to the end of August, Brian, we, uh, I've, of course, have been dealing with the Delta variant, and we've uh, heard uh, all the things that uh, that could pose. But now there is a new uh, information out uh, that there is a new COVID-19 variant that we should be possibly concerned about. Brian, would you like to share with the class what that is? <laughs> well, so there's um, a preliminary report. I would I would describe it as out of um, researchers in South Africa, they've identified a, a, a new version of the South African variant, which some of your listeners may have heard about, um, that they have found circulating uh, in in South Africa. Uh, it has more mutations than um, the other ones we've heard about, but um, which may make it you know more able to evade uh, current vaccines and existing immunity that people have. But the truth is, if you look carefully at the data, there's only been about a hundred cases reported in the world, mostly in South Africa. There've been a uh, a, a smattering of travelers that have uh, picked it up and, and been spotted in Europe, but it hasn't, as far as we can tell right now, hasn't started spreading. So in the language of the World Health Organization, this is not yet a variant of concern. It's a variant of interest, and they'll be watching to see if it starts to get going. But I think given um, the period of time over which they found 100 cases, and they've only found 100 um, a lot of experts are, are sort of saying, well, it's an interesting variant um, if you study viruses, but it may not have the legs that Delta does, and it may not be able to compete with Delta, and may never even show up or become a variant of concern here in Canada. Brian, I'm wondering, and you mentioned about the uh, vaccines that uh, we've been, of course, uh, hearing and people are being urged to get the vaccine. Um, and you kind of hinted that maybe this particular, uh, I guess it's the beta COVID-19 variant, uh, may be a, a little stronger than some of the uh, vaccinations uh, would uh, have us believe. Is that true? Um, I wouldn't say stronger. It's just and this is a version of the beta variant, actually. So it's 1.2 hmm. of the beta variant. Um, it is um, it's, it's sufficiently different than the original COVID-19 virus that the vaccines were designed for that, at least theoretically, um, the level of protection of the current vaccines against that variant, if it got going, wouldn't be as good as they are against um, the original parental virus or even the Delta variant. But we don't know yet. Uh, so 
Is it too simplistic, Brian, to say that this is, um, as we talked about COVID, uh, it is a virus and it's never really going to go away, but it can be kind of managed and uh, subdued? Because I've, I've heard some politicians say, well, we have to kill the virus. That's not possible, is it? I think at this point, uh, you can conclude that it'll never go away. But um, there are other coronaviruses that many of us have had in our lives, and they cause the common cold. And we think that some of those coronaviruses came into the human population from other animals years ago, um, maybe caused a pandemic, you know, in in prehistoric times or, or medieval times or whenever, but they... Um, they settled into becoming a cold virus. And, and, and I think people are hoping that that's what will eventually happen here, that so many people will become vaccinated, so many people will have immunity, uh, the virus will settle into the sort of the best or most um, competitive version of itself, and that's what we will end up living with. And, you know, some number of years from now, we'll have a cold virus going around that, that this that came from this, um, and it won't be as disruptive as it is, as it is now. You know, it's an interesting, I love the way you say that, Brian. Uh, it's uh, a competitive version of itself. It almost, and I'm not, again, I'm not being flippant here, but it almost sounds like a sporting event. You know, you've got a competitive version of some type of a coronavirus. Interesting twist of words. Well, yeah, it, it, that's what it's like. You're going to, we're fine. So the Delta virus uh, is, is a is a, uh, if you want a better virus than the original, it it spreads better and it's more fit, um, and more competitive, and that's why it's the dominant virus right now, and 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 that's one reason why this new South African one may not come to dominate because it it may not turn out to be able to compete with the Delta variant. That we we may have already found the sort of the, the version we're going to live with down the road, um, something like Delta, and um, as people get fully vaccinated, and, and some people, you know, older people and immunocompromised people get their third dose, and and, um, and we finally get, you know, these last stragglers to get a vaccine, we'll get to a point where um, we can live with the Delta and go back to normal. Do you think, Brian, for the general population, a third dose is something that people should be maybe uh, putting on, on the radar screen down the road several months or a year, whatever, from now? I think the way things are going to break out this fall are that, uh, you know, seniors, I don't know where they'll draw the line in terms of the, you know, over a certain age. <clears throat> and anyone who knows that they are immunosuppressed because, let's say they've been fighting cancer or some other disease or they've been immunosuppressed because they um, um, have had an organ transplant and they're, they're taking medications so they don't reject their organ. People like that, um, the guidance is going to be that they should get a third dose and we'll start there. And then we'll see about, uh, you know, younger people who, who probably had a better response to their second dose whether they'll need a third one or not, time will tell. Our guest on uh, the Bill Kelly Show on 980 CFPL London, 900 CHML Hamilton, is a Dr. Brian Lichty, the Associate Professor in Pathology and Molecular Medicine with the McMaster Immunity. 
Immunology Research Center. Uh, Brian, off the top, we uh, talked about um, the province yesterday kind of changing things, removing a runny nose from the list of COVID symptoms requiring a child to stay home from school or daycare. Uh, there are some, um, I would suggest, Brian, that there are a lot of parents that are thankful with this because I know that in many cases, if a child has, you know, runny nose or they're coughing or what have you, the school or the daycare says you have to go and get a COVID test before you're allowed back in. So I would suggest that maybe uh, this is good news for, for parents and kids alike. It'll make it a little easier. I mean, of course, people, it disrupts your life if if you have a uh, you know a young family member needs to stay home, mm-hmm. usually somebody's got to take some time off and and be there with them, of course. And 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 having to go get tested is 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 also a bit of a inconvenience. And of course, we all know that when children go back to school, they get runny noses. It's the way it goes. But if it turns into a cough or any of those other symptoms, then um, you know, they have to consider the possibility that they've picked up COVID and follow the protocols. By the way, uh, the five uh, categories of symptoms that we heard off the top, uh, fevers and chills, cough or barking cough, shortness of breath, losing taste or smell or nausea, vomiting or diarrhea. Uh, As we mentioned, Brian, you know, uh, runny nose is one thing in a cough, but when you're talking about shortness of breath or losing taste or smell or nausea, clearly that's a little more serious than just keeping somebody home with a runny nose. Yeah, and then it makes sense to keep them home and keep an eye on them and take care of them um, and and watch that it doesn't get worse because, you know, unfortunately, young people are ending up in hospitals in places like those, uh, you know, the states in the southern U.S. where kids have gone back to school and few people are vaccinated or not enough people are vaccinated. Kids are ending up in hospitals, so you know it makes sense to keep them home if they're starting to get that sick. And keep an eye on them and take care of them. Brian, um, is it your sense now that uh, over the last sixteen or seventeen months, that collectively, and of course, as we say, the the stragglers that haven't got their uh, COVID vaccine, but are are we so much further ahead now than when we were when this first started? Things like mask wearing and washing your hands and not coughing and social distancing and all that stuff. Uh, have we collectively learned our lessons, so to speak, over the last uh, few months of the pandemic? Well, um you know, when I go out in public and look around, I think most people have. I think Canada's done decently well in terms of, uh, I think we're a, overall a group of people that, um, you know, care about each other, um, which is why we have universal health care, for example. And, and that, um, you know, social conscience causes Canadians, most of us, to, to do what we should to keep each other safe. And, you know, as you know, a high percentage, but not not enough people yet, have gone out and gotten vaccinated. Um, and the truth is, uh, really, the, the vast majority of people who are in intensive care or are dying, unfortunately, right now, are people who are not fully vaccinated. So that's the thing we've got to sort of figure out to 
finally close the door on this thing. Brian, before we wrap up, I'm um, curious as to your thoughts. We have been uh, kind of told in the last few weeks that uh, the experts are saying that it could be uh, another brutal fall or winter when it comes to uh, the pandemic and the virus and people getting sick. Is it your, in your research and work, uh, is, is the fall going to be quite as dire as some of the other experts are predicting? Well, I'm not... Um, I'm not a modeler. I'm not one of the people that are crunching the numbers. So um, all I can, I think, say is that um, there's some chance that, you know, with young people going back to school, as the weather gets colder, people tend to be, you know, indoors more and near each other more. Those are the circumstances which a virus like this, you know, needs to be able to spread even more. Um, the good news is that fully vaccinated people, while they can get infected and they can pass on the virus, they tend to stay out of hospital. And that's really the problem that we're trying to avoid all the way along through this. We don't want to overwhelm our healthcare system, get it to the point where it's, you know, about to, to, to break and we're overwhelming the frontline workers and the system's unable to provide other treatments and you know cancer therapies and stuff to people because it's so overwhelmed with covid that's what we have to avoid and so um we'll see how it goes dr brian lichty the associate professor in pathology and molecular medicine at the mcmaster immunology research center uh, thank you for the update on uh, the variant that people are maybe getting a little concerned about. We'll certainly, as we say, uh, keep everybody informed on that. And, and hopefully the variant that is uh, currently forming in, uh, in South Africa does not become a major factor. Hopefully, fingers crossed on that. Thanks for the time, Brian. Stay safe and enjoy the upcoming long weekend. You too. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.